the course. We are dead. We are all dead. We were supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I know kung fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This whole thing is insane. This whole thing is insane. 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men with power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane. Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert. Of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the latest AB Live. Audio version for thee in this eternal now and in this red pill cafeteria. Hades shaked as Ronnie Pontiac arrived at the virtual Alexandria. He discussed his game-changing new book, The Magic of the Orphic Hymns, a new translation for the modern mystic. Listen to the truth-telling tune of the cult of Orpheus and its impact on civilization. Did this movement even exist? And did it influence the Gnostics? What are the secrets behind the ethereal hymns that can expand your consciousness? Won't you take a ride on heavy metal with Orpheus into the underworlds of myth and history and your true self? Please support if you find any value in this content. The Gnostic revelation is more important than ever, and I can't do it without you. I am very grateful for those of you who come through every week. It's not hard to contribute. For example, you can simply pledge a few dollars a month on my Patreon. One-time donations are also really appreciated, and it can be crypto. It really helps, and I can use all the help as we all do. Don't forget my voiceover availability for any podcast, video game, commercial, audiobook, documentary, or whatever. I'll bring you stellar results with down-to-home professionalism. And don't forget I do have an Amazon wish list and a fantastic merch store. Other than that, the song is over. Thought I'd have more to say. Let us to our latest AB Live. You don't have to die, Jack. She doesn't have to die. Everybody dies, Sally. The thing is to die well. Jack, that's not the survivor you promised me. No, it's not.
said was, how can a man die better than facing fearful odds? Get inside! Get inside! The ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods. I created you, Jack. I am your god. Fuck you, Sally. Welcome, everybody, to AM Byte. Welcome to AB Live. Welcome to the machine, my son, and the means to escape it. And yes, it's appropriate. Uh, I used again that uh, song uh, that was nicely, kindly provided by my friend Rhyme, an incredible artist in Japan. And it does relate to this week's show. We used it last week for Estrella Taylor's show about creativity, magic, and navigating the world today. And this song is about navigating consciousness, navigating the world of technology and AI and staying as an artist relevant to today and a theme of this show that seems to be happening as next week we will be joined by Marlene Seven Bremner to discuss, yes, uh, hermeticism, alchemy and creativity. So an ongoing show and welcome everybody. My name is Miguel Connor and I am still your pompadus of gnosis. Perhaps AI, perhaps in the flesh. Who knows? That's what we're trying to figure out. But somebody who's definitely in the flesh and always excited to talk to him, and that is Ronnie Pontiac. Ronnie, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Well, thank you for having me back. I really appreciate it. Pleasure's all ours. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vans. Vans, how are you doing? Oh, recovering from the intro, but I'm okay. Did <laughs> <laughs> you go into the underworld? <laughs> yeah, ready to, ready to go down there and see that Hades guy. That Hades guy, yeah, and his wife, Persephone, who we'll yeah. find out is some people forget she is kind of the real villain in these things. Ooh. But, um, yeah, awesome. Well, those of you in the chat, uh, we've got an exciting interview. We will be discussing Ronnie and Tamara's excellent new book, which I really enjoyed, The Magic of the Orphic Hymns, a new translation for the modern mystic. So if you have questions, please super chat them so we can prune you from the underworld and uh and uh yeah answer your questions or deal with your complaints or whatever you have and yeah stay good there don't turn the don't bring witiko and turn it into the chatiko but as always you guys really really behave and have some great ideas so well ronnie again i really enjoyed the book Tell us uh, how this book came about or maybe first how did you uh how did you and Orpheus meet? I think actually that the book started out when I was a little kid watching reruns of the original Star Trek and I saw the episode with Apollo and I was really struck by the idea of the Greek gods having given us civilization and that they were rejected and forgotten and lost. And strangely, around the same time, I started to create this scroll of my favorite monsters. And I believe that was my first book. And on one level, it's the American metaphysical religion book with all my my monsters from the history of America's esotericism in it. And this one is sort of my collection of the gods, 
different kind of monster. I actually ran into Orpheus at the Philosophical Research Society where I was working on a reprint of the Thomas Taylor uh, translation, which was the only English translation available for a very long time and was uh, very influential in all sorts of areas of art and esotericism and poetry in the West. And this was being republished and, and just working on it and, and reading about the comments that, that people that I respected had about it really drew my attention. So, for example, um, famously, uh, Marsilio Ficino, who some call the father of the Renaissance, uh, he said, I learned from Orpheus that love existed and that it held the keys to the whole world, the whole power of magic consists in love. The work of magic is the attraction of one thing by another because of a certain affinity of nature. And Ficino also said that there was uh, no magic more powerful than the Orphic hymns. Mm -hmm. And then Agrippa, who sort of follows him, and it certainly was very influenced, he's born 30 years after Ficino's death, and he, he produces the amazing Three Books of Occult Philosophy, which is probably the most plagiarized book in the Western esoteric tradition, and really was the, the, the moment when it congealed into this, uh, this river of, of influence. And, and he said, he actually advised his readers to research the hymns of Orpheus, with the right circumstances, with the well, which the wise understand, and with appropriate harmony and complete attention, it is the most effective natural magic. So seeing that and understanding that, that these hymns influenced the likes of Shelley and Emerson and Keats and William Blake and just all sorts of people, uh, I, I dove into them and found the Taylor translation, as most people do, really difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, rewarding, but so antiquated. And the thing is, too, that the original hymns are very formulaic um, because the people that, that sang them knew the details of the cult. They knew the details that uh, they had provided in each ritual to draw the attention of the deity being addressed. But we don't know that. So uh, Tamara and I decided all the way back then that we would do a translation in which we tried to put in some details but there's been so much incredible new research since then. And that was just a joy for us to dive into it and find out all these things that were big mysteries that are somewhat solved. Because the funny thing about Orpheus and the Orphic mysteries is that you, there's nothing that's for sure. I mean, everything about it is mysterious and it's often compared by historians to Penelope and the Odyssey weaving and then unweaving at night because there's always discovery. Something happens in archaeology and it reverses a hundred years of opinion about whether there actually was an Orphic religion or if it was just a literary device. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I loved it because, yeah, the first 110 pages, you guys, is just a tight history with all these mind-blowing insights uh, that I hope we can touch upon. And then, of course, there's the beautiful, there's the beautiful translations, which I can't wait to go uh, sing to Artemis when I do my summer uh, prayers or whatever. The moon last night was, God, it was mind-blowing, that uh, yeah. super moon. I yeah. thought, I've never seen anything like it. It was amazing. But, uh, yeah, wonderful book. But 
you and Tamara actually didn't you incorporate it in your band and you write you guys were doing it and you kissed and thunder lit the sky uh, no, I know that was magic I, I believe yeah, in that <laughs> there's there's the memory of, of readers right there <laughs> <laughs> no what happened was that we did um, we decided to sing them and mm. but in a very quiet way it was partly just a way of saying goodbye to our old life and entering our new life as musicians and and just we'd want to try them out too because people had such powerful things to say about them. So we lived in this apartment in Hollywood. We had a, a view of other apartments, but a couple trees and and you could see the sky. So uh, we actually stopped smoking dope and stopped drinking and all the musician <laughs> stuff because they didn't do that in in the Orphic Mysteries. Uh, although they may have had a special substance that they used if there was a ritual, which is a big question. Um, and so we we've decided that instead we would just softly sing them and try to pick the appropriate hours, the appropriate days, pay attention to everything that Ficino had pointed out and, and also Agrippa, how transits were going in our own charts and what planets were most active in the sky at any given time. And as we did this thing, which was just meant as sort of a romantic artistic lark, you know, an experiment, weird things happened. I mean, the synchronicities were sometimes really shocking. So my favorite was when we did the hymn to Athena, this great horned owl showed up. And at the mm. time there were, there were very few owls in Hollywood and it showed up and landed on a telephone pole right across from our window, sat there during the whole hymn. And when the hymn ended, it, it jumped off and flew directly at us and then wow. swooped up just before it reached the window. So we thought, wow, okay, that was weird. And then the one you were referring to was when we did the hymn to Aphrodite, while we were in the midst of it, this couple who were walking hand in hand stopped right underneath our window, and then they kissed passionately. There were a number of these experiences that were inexplicable and, and kind of uh, shocking and, and unbelievable, and enough of them that we knew something was going on. And it continued to do that, by the way, even when we returned to it, uh, when we did the book for inner traditions, weird things happened around it. Very cool. And how would you advise people to use the hymns? Just any way they want, a specific way? I mean, yeah, something well, similar to you and Tamara or how to really experience <laughs> well, uh, them? They they're, can be just literary. I mean, just enjoy the poetry. They're, they're an amazing look at all the different yeah. aspects of human life. But if, They've actually been tried out for ritual, not just by us, but when we were working on the book for Inner Traditions, we talked to friends who were involved either on the pagan witchcraft side of things or who were practicing theurgy, the, the Neoplatonic art of, of working on getting union with divinities. And so they, they were people that were experienced with using the Orphic hymns, and they tried ours out and, and reported that they, they became favorites uh, that seemed to be really effective. So I suggest that what they were intended for is not like, um, like magic to bend the world to your will. Like if you're trying to get something in particular, these are not really the right choice for that kind of thing. They are for tuning yourself up to the harmony of nature and the divine in nature. So as you go through them or as you choose a particular one, what you are doing is you are, you are you're lifting yourself to a rapport with that deity. And the idea is that by doing all of the hymns, you tune up 
all the different areas of life. And it even includes dreams and death and sleep and just about everything. And, and that is a really amazing, at least we, as we experienced it, experience, because beyond the synchronicities that happen to us, there really is a sense of this tuning. And Orphism is closely related to Pythagoras. And Pythagoras used to use music to tune emotions and to achieve certain states of meditation and was very concerned about what chords could produce what kinds of effects, including healing. And we don't know whether Pythagoras was strongly influenced by Orpheus and the Orphic Mysteries, or if he actually may have written a lot of this stuff and, and maybe even used the name Orpheus. There's a, a, a name out there, Orpheus of Croton. Mm-hmm. And there are some ancient writers who say, yeah, well, all that stuff signed by Orpheus was really Pythagoras and his community. But no one is sure because, again, the evidence is so slight and the evidence can point in more than one direction. Oh, yeah. I love the, the different ideas that you bring and possibilities. And, yeah, the, I love the writing. I love the hymns. For the audience, okay. I have to say that uh, Ronnie and Tamara have been invaluable in helping me with the Elvis bio. I am eternally grateful for it. Uh, they've certainly improved the book. And uh, it's amazing. And, of course, he knew I was going to catch it as soon as I saw it. But Elvis appears in page 50. So uh, I was very happy. And then, of course, you mentioned that in the uh, when he's with the Argonauts, Orpheus does say he went to Memphis. It was Tennessee, <laughs> right? <laughs> he's among all those great Greeks who supposedly visited the Egyptians, but really, uh, it was Tennessee. It had to be Tennessee. Yeah, he, had to go. he went to well, Graceland. It's, <laughs> it's funny because Elvis illustrates that Orphic archetype, and yeah. and we have a great quote in there from a wonderful jazz musician who's also an expert on Neoplatonism. And on Plato, who who said that that when he was a kid, he he actually saw Elvis. He was in town to see somebody uh-huh. else, a great jazz musician. But he saw Elvis, one of the very earliest gigs, and he saw Elvis being chased by the main ads mm-hmm. and and people screaming, "I got a scarf! I got a scarf!" and and he had this chill that he was watching Orpheus. Oh yeah, I mean, there's you know when when he started or all the time he made the stupid mistake of he put his key, some lucky lady's going to get my keys tonight. And they had to stop the concert and the women, like the maniads, they were trashing the place out. I mean, he had that sort of ecstatic power that Orpheus had too over everybody. Mm -hmm. And he's, of course, the, you know, androgynous, forlorn kind of sad crooner that, well, Orpheus really started that stuff, didn't he? (laughs) He really did. It's, it's funny. He's, He's kind of the the ultimate counterculture figure in the West. And mm-hmm. the first three books that I've been working on, the first two are out. This is the second one, obviously co-authored with Tamara. And there's a third one on the Rosicrucians are really about countercultures. The American Metaphysical Religion book is about this vast 400-year counterculture in America that was ignored by historians. And this is about what might be the richest root of counterculture in the history of the West. And what you see here is a culture that that worshipped the Olympian gods, that worshipped heroes who were warriors like Achilles and Hector, and right. who who when and when Homer's writing, his heroes, uh, Nestor, one of the kings, says, you know, back in the day, the real heroes, they would have kicked all your asses. They were really <laughs> strong. They didn't need all these fancy weapons. And but then Orpheus comes along 
And in some sense, this, I, I believe, is a shift from a warrior culture to a city culture, you know, a civilized kind of approach that we all have to get along. And the Dionysian religion was sort of an invasion into the Olympian world. It was a little more savage. I mean, the Olympians, they took sacrifices, but those were basically big barbecues. The whole community would get together. They would sacrifice an animal. They would put some of the parts together and the gods would enjoy the perfume of it. And then we'd all eat it. Mm -hmm. But when Dionysus came along, things got weird. And Euripides, of course, captures this beautifully in his tragedy where he has uh, oh, di- uh, sorry, uh, uh, Dionysus show up and absolutely destroy a city, starting out by getting the king, Pentheus, who is a manly man and who despises <laughs> Dionysus for being effeminate and given to sensuality. And he winds up convincing Pentheus to put on a dress so that he can spy on what these women are doing out there in the forest in these Dionysian mysteries. He thinks it must be hot, you know, and he's going to find out what kind of uh, perversion. <laughs> They're hitting each other with pillows. like <laughs> Right, exactly. And and it's a show. And so he's out there. And there's, Euripides is funny in the midst of the tragedy. He says things like Pentheus is saying, oh, but do you think this makes me look fat? You know, <laughs> and and he shows how how easy it is for even the most masculine and committed males to to have that female shadow usurp their rational side and of course pentheus is caught and his own mother rips him into pieces thinking that he's someone who has defamed the mysteries and she's been crazed by the god so she doesn't see that it's her son and she thinks she's killing this wild animal and she returns holding his head as the bloody trophy of this animal and when she reaches the city, she wakes up when everybody is horrified by her and realizes what Dionysus has made her do. And so the, this was they're trying to, to say Dionysus does represent something about Greek culture and about humanity, but it's a very dangerous force. It's equally dangerous to ignore it as it is to give into it. It's dangerous to fight it, but it's dangerous to completely lose yourself in its ecstasy. Now, Orpheus comes along and he says, no more animal sacrifice, because we think that he was teaching a form of reincarnation. We know Pythagoras was. Mm-hmm. And, and so the idea was your mother, your someone you love deeply in a former life may be this animal that you're killing and eating. And also as a soul, you only need one body. You don't need to consume other bodies. If you do that, all you're doing is you're bringing down your clarity and you're making it harder for your body to be an easy vehicle for your soul. These are shocking ideas. He's also nonviolent. He doesn't want his followers to engage in warfare. He doesn't want them to care about being good at weaponry and fighting. Quite the contrary. He's teaching peace and He's teaching that that we are preparing to die, that this world is a punishment and that that we are here to learn and learn to please the gods. And you can't please the gods, Orpheus taught, by being violent, by killing animals, by smearing bull blood all over yourself and bellowing. He said, he said, look at Apollo. And Apollo was the god that that Orpheus was the high priest of, we are, mm-hmm. some people argue. And And so he says, Apollo is about harmony, civilization, wisdom. 
And it, that's not entirely true, by the way. There was a very dark side of Apollo with his wolf totem and the famous right. statue of him with a hammer waiting to smash a lizard on a tree trunk. Right. But Apollo, in the Orphic tradition, is the savior of Dionysus. So let me let me give your readers, I mean, sorry, your uh, listeners a little background on that. Sure. One of the the ideas that is supposedly Orphic, and again, no one is sure if it really is, is the idea that human beings were produced from the fusion of the Titan and Dionysus. And what happened was when Dionysus was born, Zeus just adored him, let him crawl up on his throne, meaning that Dionysus had the power of Zeus over all things. And in jealousy, the Titan seeing this, they took these toys, like some apples and a, a tuft of cotton, just various things, and they used them, a mirror too, to lure Dionysus. And we are told that the planets were the apples, that, that each of these things was symbolic of some aspect of the manifestation of the material world and of the bodies that, that we now inhabit. And... And so lured by these things, by these, these cosmic energies of creation that the Titans are manipulating, or uh, sorry, uh, Dionysus is caught, captured and he's cooked, slaughtered and cooked mm-hmm. into a, a stew by, the, by these cannibalistic Titans. And Zeus finally gets wind of what's going on and he sends a lightning bolt and fries ev- the whole scenario. And what happens right. is that there is divine Dionysus in there from the body of Dionysus and there is the Titans. And from those ashes of the combination, human beings are born. And so this is the famous Orphic saying, I'm a child of earth and of starry heaven, but my race is of heaven. In other words, I may be part Titan. I may be part of the forces of the material world and be blindly destructive. Just anything I do leads to some kind of destruction. I'm filled with anger. I'm filled with paranoia and jealousy. And I hate the gods and I hate the world that they've created. And that is every human being on some level. We all carry that. And then, but also we are all children of Dionysus, or as it's sometimes said, the tears of Dionysus. And the tears of Dionysus, which are our souls, fall through space in and out of incarnation, not knowing that we are actually the grandchildren of Zeus. Indeed, yeah. <clears throat> they were, uh, Cult of Orpheus was definitely uh, Adam and Goody Two Shoes. And as, as some have said, and again, this is all speculating, Ronnie, we're all speculating that the Cult of Orpheus might have been very influential with the Christian Gnostics. Obviously, Clement of Alexandria says, you know, Jesus is the new song of Orpheus, as you mentioned in your book. But yeah, the idea that we are divine sparks trapped in matter. This is a fallen world, vegetarianism, pacifism, reincarnation. And like the Gnostics that were kind of emo, surly edgelords about the whole thing. So it might have influenced it. And I love yeah what you said about how the reaction Greece had in your book. You talk about how uh, Plato himself kind of sneers at the people of Orpheus, right? He says, ah, Orpheus was a liar, you know? Oh, no wonder he's a musician. And you say, well, we have history's first musician joke, you know? Yeah. Plato is talking about this guy. And it reminds me, 
in a parallel world too when Elvis rose Frank Sinatra who was then the biggest star in the world was like that Elvis he's not going to make it he's not going to last this da, 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 da. but of course Orpheus Elvis rises and then later on uh, Frank Sinatra has to bow down and bring Elvis to a show to make nice so Plato is kind of playing that too right he didn't know exactly what to do even though he also said that didn't Orpheus, uh, he says Orpheus brought all the math and stuff to Greece? He's yeah, kinda... it's funny. It's, it's such a split uh, personality with Plato when it comes to Orpheus. Often because on many things. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He 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 says that he thinks that, that Orpheus was a coward. He thinks it was wrong for Orpheus to go and try to get his wife back. There again, what a coward. I mean, that was fate. <laughs> and now you're trying to break fate and you're misusing your talent. And he actually said that he thought that that Eurydice never followed Orpheus back, that mm. all that Hades did was he put a ghost there to represent her, to make a fool out of Orpheus, and, and that this was proper punishment. And so was uh, Plato thought being torn apart by the main ads because he was not acting with the dignity of a mortal. And of course, they, the, the society that needed warriors did not like the Orphic influence. And Aristophanes has some hilarious stuff in his plays like The Clouds, where he's really talking about, about people who are into Orpheus. And he talks about they don't, they don't eat meat and, uh, and they, they don't fight. And so this was considered a threat because the other thing was that the Orphics weren't that into civic duty. These were not people who felt a strong sense of the most important thing is the polis, is our community. These were people who were preparing to die. And so interestingly, you mentioned the Christianity. I want to jump back to that because that was one of the things that was most surprising to us was how powerful the influence was on Christianity, on the Catholic Church, how many church fathers and even anonymous writers uh, referred to, to Orpheus and Jesus in the same sentence. Mm -hmm. And there were even outright statements like, look, it's clear that Orpheus had a very similar revelation and it's just that that wasn't happening yet. We didn't have Christ. So, but this stuff's still really good. And we can take what we want out of it because it's genuine revelation. And uh, Pico della Mirandola, the friend of uh, Ficino, who is most famous for his oration on the dignity of men, of man, said, the names of the gods that Orpheus sings are not the names of deceiving demons from whom evil and not good comes but of natural and divine powers distributed in the world by the true God for the great utility of man, if he knows how to use them. So there were Christians, and, and by the way, Ficino himself, who's talking about how this is the strongest magic and this taught me the meaning of love, was a Catholic priest. Mm -hmm. So... This this it was a very profound influence on Christianity and even the depictions of Jesus. Before we had Jesus, the good shepherd, surrounded by the lambs, we had Orpheus with his lyre surrounded by the animals who were fascinated by his song. Yeah, Dr. Doolittle. So a little for a little uh, uh, context, you've got, yeah, the cult of Dionysus, then this figure of Orpheus comes. And again, kind of sterilizes Dionysus, Gnosticizes or whatever. And then you have the mysteries of Orpheus. But don't you write that, and, I, and I'm forgetting, the Orpheus itself might have been just like a, a New Age movement, a catch-all phrase, kind of like Hermes and Thoth, 
you would just throw their names on everything that was woo woo or mysterious or yeah. mystical. Is that what happened? Or yeah, that was well, from the get go. This is an argument that's that's gone on throughout the the history of this as people have studied it. And in the beginning, people thought that Orpheus was Orpheus. And so, for instance, Ficino thought Orpheus was this guy who studied from Hermes. Hermes was his teacher. And Hermes was a real guy too in Egypt. And, and then it, it kind of changes and they start saying, well, actually, you know, Orpheus learned from Moses, which is kind of a weird one, but that grew up in Alexandria amongst the Jewish community there. And everybody was kind of claiming him as, as somebody that they had influenced. And of course, it's been said that Madame Blavatsky thought that he was an avatar of Krishna and that Dionysus was was from India, and so was Orpheus. That he was dark in skin, and she tries to show some uh, suspect Greek philology to prove that that that's the case. And we don't really know. The chances are there, that there really wasn't any historical Orpheus, although in Bulgaria, in the area that used to be Thrace, he is celebrated as an actual king who mm. brought peace and, and wisdom to the society. There were some times when they, six different people of the name Orpheus were offered for some time as these were different people with a name and who had different things to do with the development of the hymns of Orpheus. And, and then as far as the actual mysteries themselves, there were in the early days people that argued that this was a huge pagan church, that it was much like the Catholic church and, and how it lasted centuries and it was the most dominant church in the Mediterranean and that some even said that part of the ritual was that you were hung up on a kind of a cross, but this cross would spin. And so they would spin you on this thing and then let you go and you'd like fall on your face because you were all dizzy. And they would tell you that's what your soul <laughs> is like as it goes flying through space and ignorance because you have forgotten who you truly are. And, and so this was a whole theory that one German scholar came up with. And more recent scholarship based on archaeological discoveries seems to support Plato's idea more, which is that there was some kind of an Orphic movement, mm -hmm. an intellectual movement, maybe comparable to the writers of the Fama and, and the chemical marriage and the Rosicrucian movement. And that there were people who took up these these hymns and these other writings of Orpheus that were put out there for the edification of people and to lift society and to lift the individual. And they started to use them as a kind of holy book. And much like mediums in America uh, at all times of our history, they would try to find people who had rich relatives who had just died or uh, a wealthy family in a town that, that was mourning. And they would go there and they would say, you know, if your relative wasn't initiated, then they're they're in a terrible place right now. And for a, a small nominal fee, I can do a ritual and help them find where they need to go. And by the way, I have these books available, which could help you guys. And and there's also for those of you who wish to afford it, we have these gold leaves on which we've written these important formulas and we bury them with the dead so that they have this to consult so that they are sure to, to reach the Elysian fields and not wind up in forgetfulness being incarnated again. And Plato just thought they were the lowest of the low, just preying <laughs> on people that way. And, and that may very well be the case. We do find evidence that there was something like that going on around Plato's time. 
at the same time, the myth of Orpheus, as you and Tamara write, is not particular to Greece. It's almost like it's something in our human psyche, right? You write about, uh, there's a story in Japan, there's a story of the coyote in native lore where the coyote miss, loses his wife and death God has to show me kind of makes the same mistakes as Orpheus. So this is yeah. a universal myth. Very Power. much so. There's a number of them in, in uh, indigenous, like you just said. I mean, it, the, I mean, many of them, not just that one. And there's a wonderful Hindu one about the god Yama and a very devoted wife who, who tricks him into bringing her husband back to life. It's also interesting to note that, that some scholars argue that in the very early versions of Orpheus, that he's actually saved by the, the female who in, in those versions is not called Eurydice, which, and, and by the way, her name means wide ruling justice. So, uh, I mean, is that Persephone who's one of the judges of the dead? So yeah. is this a name of Persephone, uh, actually Eurydice? It's the same dynamic, right? Because Hades uh, is, is somebody who comes up and, and just takes her and, and Orpheus loses Eurydice because someone takes her and in running away, she falls into a, a den of serpents and Freud would have a lot of fun with that. But, <laughs> but, it, but that's, that's kind of the, the question. I, I want to go back also and mention that about the sure. mysteries, it's still not that, that clear cut because the clean cut, because the uh, Plutarch who, you know, isn't a very dependable historian, but has an awful lot of access to materials that we didn't have wrote that he and his wife were initiated into the mysteries of Orpheus. And he described experiences. He said, for instance, that you would be running in the dark, just running in desperate fear in the dark, and you, there was no way out. And, and then suddenly there would be this heavenly music and this amazing smell, and, and then you would burst out into light, and there'd be people singing the hymns there. And, and so it, it, it was something. Something was going on. There's other stories that, that they would paint the entryway with depictions of the horrors of life because many people didn't see them unless a war came by or someone in their family died of disease. It wasn't like TV or, or our internet where everything is blasted at us all the time. Mm -hmm. And so here you would walk into this sacred cave and you would see old age and disease and wounds and all kinds of horrors of life that would make you feel a sense of apprehension. And then supposedly you put on the shroud of death and you sat on a stool for a long time contemplating that. But we don't know if that really happened. Again, it's it's really speculation. Yeah, I'm sure there's probably many variations. Again, if it was sort yeah. of a new age wide thing, who knows? I mean, so much going on there. Vance, what do you think? Do you have a question or from the audience? Yeah, um, a couple of things. Um is there any connection um, between David and the Bible with his lyre and the Psalms and all that stuff? It was so musical and Orpheus. There seems to be, must be something going on. With that. Well, it was definitely recognized. And, and it's, it's cool that you mentioned that because we see this, this transformation of Orpheus in the medieval era. He disappears. Like when the Neoplatonists are gone, the church kind of keeps him alive, but only amongst the intellectuals of the church. And he, he pretty much disappears only to reappear among the troubadours, where he begins to become a symbol of the ultimate 
music musician who sings about lost love and knows all the mysteries and very inspiring to the troubadours who were always singing about about love that couldn't be consummated and who had a lot of esoteric knowledge built into their music and then he after a while they get tired of that one he's very that one's very chivalrous and then they decide no he's a warrior he's a warrior and a musician and he's just like king david so then uh, writers begin to compare him a lot to David. And then as far as was there actual an interface, I mean, the chances are that these were similar roles because many societies had musicians who were carrying esoteric knowledge. And in some societies, they brought uh, reform and, and changes. And, and so, for example, one of the, uh, the very unreliable but really enjoyable esoteric scholars of France Fabre de Olivier, he wrote in his bizarre kind of history based on his theories of, of how languages morphed through time, that Orpheus was the guy in the West who, when the power of kings was declining in the ancient world and chaos was threatening to take over, that he switched the seat of power from the thrones of kings to the priests and to the schools of mystery. Highly uh, unlikely, but an interesting perspective. There was some truth in it, in a way. But at the same time, it makes sense, Ronnie, because uh, more good scholars have noticed that the uh, habits and symbolism of the ancient Hebrews parallels the cult of Dionysus. It was probably some ancient animistic shamanistic movement yeah. that was all over the place. So yeah, Orpheus so. would fit with David. Yeah. Very much so. And Joseph Campbell talked about how there was this period of, you know, the climate went bad, food became more difficult. There was a lot of war because people were driven out of areas that they had been inhabiting for generations. And it was it was I think he calls it the great lament. And and there's very similar art and music produced all around the Mediterranean during those days and all over Europe. And it's easy to look at that and say, well, that must all be Orpheus. And in fact, there were people like uh, the, the guy who made up his own name, the Baron Hankerville, who was an incredible collector. Or really, he he's the guy who enabled collectors of antiquities. But he, he created these huge books in which he showcased these antiquities. And and his theory was that that a he actually found this egg, like an Orphic egg with a bowl, which is, these are symbols involved with Orphism that was in Japan. And he was like, see, that proves that Orpheus was in Japan <laughs> with Jesus. Yeah, sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, it was very popular. Anything else, Vance? Yeah, you know. I can't help but notice that the uh, as an instrument, the guitar in our society has had a huge lifetime, you know. And I wonder if there's some connection with Orpheus and his lyre and the guitar. Is there something magical about stringed instruments that, you know, that causes them, you know? Yeah. That, no, that's an interesting question. Because first, there's an interesting theory <clears throat> here, <clears throat> which is that some scholars are arguing now that the original instrument of Orpheus was a reed flute because they hmm. couldn't picture this guy who made it uh, a terrible sin to sacrifice an animal strumming the strings of guts yeah. that might've belonged ah. to his mother in another life. Yeah. <laughs> so it seemed highly <laughs> unlikely. So it could be that he played flute originally, 
But certainly among the Pythagoreans and among the Orphics, the thing about string instruments is what makes them so horrible for guitar players is tuning them, right? Because they're oh, always, you know, you pull a string and it goes out of tune. And, and yet it's in that balance, in finding the balance between those strings and finding the harmony there where suddenly everything is, is intonated perfectly and everyone can recognize that sound. There's this chiming, almost heavenly quality to it. And so uh, I do think that, that Orpheus first as the symbol of this, this incredible reformer and this kind of uh, the root of all counterculture in the West, this, this, like you were saying earlier, Miguel, this, the sad singing, you know, beautiful, somewhat androgynous musician of, you know, incredible talent making these heavenly sounds and, and, and really uh, changing how people feel and, and what they're experiencing as they listen. And, and that turns into, I mean, that, that's, that's Homer. And as he's, as he's uh, sharing the Iliad as a, as a story uh, for years and years, for generations, it was a story that was only spoken and never written down. And and then it continues, as already mentioned, to the troubadours, who are, again, this mm-hmm. romantic figure going from castle to castle, declaring their love for these beautiful, noble women that they couldn't really make love to, but dedicating their lives and creating this art. And, and I, there's such a self-consciousness of it with the guitar. So whether you're looking at jazz or you're looking at rock and roll, any of it really, you find Orpheus over and over again. There's, you know, there's an Orpheus melodic metal band right now. There was an Orpheus band that sounded an awful lot like the Doors, like way too much like the Doors, but they were called Orpheus. And, and there were many musicians who talked about Orpheus or mentioned Orpheus or the way that, for example, Dylan's famous documentary when he was at the height of his fame in 1965 was called Don't Look Back because of Orpheus. Mm-hmm. So there is a way that people continue to wrestle with it. And I, one of the things that I really loved finding for this book, um, which, which thanks to Tamara actually, was Randy Rourke, a wonderful poet who worked for Allen Ginsberg and for William Burroughs, was kind enough to share with us for his book their feelings about the Greek myths and about Orpheus and about all of, of Greek civilization. And they were very skeptical there was a lot of bad poetry that had been written in the thirties and forties, you know, based on, on the Greek myths. And they didn't like that. They, they said they wanted to make themselves the myth. They wanted to make the current city, the myth. And, and famously Ginsburg said that he thought Kerouac, the myth was more important than any of the ancient myths. And Burroughs thought that it was all outdated science and psychology. He said they were just trying to figure out how things work. Those were the Freuds of the ancient world, but, they did the best they could, but that's really old and, and ancient and useless. I mean, you wouldn't go to a surgeon who was trained by the Spartans. <laughs> and, and so that, that kind of, um, of dismissal, however, didn't quite apply to Orpheus for these guys. Because he said, but you know, there was one thing that they did all appreciate, which was the Orpheus myth. And there, there was a scene in uh, Cocteau's Orpheus movie mm-hmm. where there was an artist, a, a, a poet, who was tuning into a radio in a car and getting the lines for his, his poem, for his work. 
And, and they all were really struck by that as a symbol. And this was about Orpheus. And so Orpheus somehow, even there amongst the beats who were dismissing everything about that era, he made it. And of course, Kerouac's first novel was called Orpheus Emerged. Oh, yeah, indeed. Yeah. And even uh, Jim Morrison, when asked him, uh, do you represent uh, Dionysus? He's like, I am Dionysus. Like, yeah, yeah. no shit. We, we saw how your life ended. <laughs> you really yeah. took it. You let that archetype invade you. And we know how it ends in these Greek mm -hmm. uh, tragedies when you uh, try to adopt the gods. But yeah, as you write, uh, Ronnie, uh, Orpheus is more famous than ever. You and Tamara write beyond all the paintings and sculpture and everything, that from 1600 to 2012, there have been 69 operas on Orpheus. And then, of course, yeah, you, you Jean Cacteau, Philip Glass did the Orphe. Uh, obviously, one of my favorites is uh, Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, his adaptation of Orpheus. I think it's brilliant. Uh, yeah, you give so many examples, even the movie uh, Highway to Hell, yeah, and Hades Town, right? The musical Hades Town. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, amazing. So. It, it's something that that kept coming back, and and it was very important. I, I like, for instance, what what poets have done with Eurydice in in the twentieth century mm -hmm. and in the in the twenty first, where especially women poets and some very distinguished female poets have given her. I mean, we have to understand that Eurydice. I mean, she had nothing in the beginning like not even a name like there not was no there. name no voice and you didn't know anything about her what she i mean nothing she was an absence which in some ways is appropriate but then over time so virgil was the first to give her a voice the great roman poet and she's a classic roman scold like when he looks back she goes what did you do you know you <laughs> idiot you know you ruined both of our lives and and that was different and radical when he did that and then a little bit later, we start to get the sense that, well, you know, the men really went wild with this. And they were like, no, no, no. She was glad to die because by dying, she created Orpheus. So her her contribution was dying. <laughs> and, and she should be really happy about that because look at Orpheus. He's doing so great. And eventually, as we get into the 20th century, it's H.D., who was an esoteric writer who writes a, a poem about her extremely narcissistic husband and she compares him to Orpheus. And in this poem, she's got an Orpheus that's much more concerned with being recognized for his work and who is in love with the pose of being in love because of how it makes him look. He's not actually in love. And then as, as the poets take this further, we wind up with descriptions of Orpheus such as you know, why did he turn around and look back? Control freak. Like, <laughs> like, like so many men, he was just, he couldn't trust her to do it herself. He had to turn mm -hmm. around and manage the situation. Right. And then, and then eventually there's a marvelous poem um, in which Eurydice basically says she's having a good time in, in Hades. It's, it's really great to be, to be free of the body. And then all of a sudden there's a knock on the door and who is it? And she says, it's the big O himself uh, and she says with a with a poem to pitch and me the prize <laughs> and it's all about how he's just there to showboat you know and she's the excuse and she's super relieved when she's following him and she figures out what to do which is give him a compliment 
he won't be able to, he won't be able to resist turning around and looking at me if I say, oh, you know, by the way, that music you played for Hades was so beautiful, Orpheus. And sure enough, he turns around. Really? You think so? <laughs> and then off she goes and she's happy. Now, earlier in, in the 20th century, Rilke had done a very moving in his sonnets of Orpheus. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he's Actually, it's in, in his poem, uh, Orpheus, Hermes, and Eurydice. And, and he's got, Eurydice sees him, but she doesn't know who he is. She doesn't remember Orpheus. And so in a funny way, her forgetfulness is, is an illustration of the Orphic religion's obsession with avoiding forgetfulness because that's really mm -hmm. the essence of the orphic metaphysics is that we all forget we all get down here we're entangled in bodies we're falling we're the tears of dionysus falling through all the, the the galaxies and universes and incarnating haphazardly according to the karma of what we've done before and and the situations we find ourselves in completely without consciousness that this is a, a repeating experience that's meant to teach us something. And so Apollo was considered the purifier. And this is the other great important aspect of the Orphic religion is purification. His rites were called rites of purification. And so we, we purify ourselves with the help of Apollo. And so Apollo was called savior, the savior of Dionysus, because Apollo is the one who goes around gathering up these these tears bringing the body of Dionysus back together bringing bringing all the little souls that are bits of Dionysus all back together and so it's interesting to note that Apollo kind of means you know um, not many right he, so mm -hmm. he's the he's the uniter he's he's taking all this fragmentation that was caused by the Titans and he's bringing it all back and and in that process of purification we remember and you know we we're told to be sure to drink the right water and to use that formula to tell the guardian of the water of memory or the lake of memory that that you are a child of earth and of starry heaven but your race is of heaven so that you can be freed from this wheel of suffering well said but in some of the roman stories ronnie uh Eurydice is saved, right? He doesn't turn back, and yeah, they both there, walk. As Van says, it's the Disney version. Yes, there, there are. There was an opera too. It was a big deal when uh, Gluck did an opera that that had a happy ending with Eurydice. Nobody could believe it. It was a revolution. The place went nuts, and every opera after that for a few generations had to have the happy ending. Eurydice is saved. They're together again. Amen. Happily, happily ever after until he, she tells him, you need to get a job. Sitting around <laughs> playing your liar all day is not going to do that. Go to the, yeah, go apply as a bartender or something. Uh, but Ronnie, why do you think beyond Orpheus being the great image of the archetype of the musician or the poet or what we talked about, the sort of... Uh, uh, cool guy that women and men can relate to and all that counterculture, as you said. Yeah. Why do you think his myth is so powerful? I mean, we're all, I was obsessed by, even when I was younger, I'd be like, what would I do? What would I do? Could I not turn? I mean, and you think about in life all the times that I shouldn't have looked back and times that I might've, you know, it's, 
it's a powerful myth that works on many levels, doesn't it? It's amazing. Uh, it really is. And so much of that, what makes it that is original to it. And, and that very myth of, of him turning back and seeing Eurydice and the broken love there does apply to so much of, of human life. It's such a human moment. And, and it's, it's funny too, because you, there was a time and there is now to some degree where historians were arguing that love was a concept that really didn't exist for mm -hmm. a long time, right? That, that you didn't really think of a relationship as love, but Orpheus refutes that because here we have what is definitely love. Somebody who's going into Hades to face the God of the dead to retrieve someone that he loves. It's risking everything for everything. Yeah. And so the I think part of it is that it it just speaks so deeply to us as human beings. Also, that think of how many approaches uh, to religion that Titan story is similar to, mm -hmm. and yet there's something about it that's so moving. This idea that that we're the tears of of baby Dionysus, and that that so we are divine. We are again the grandchildren of Zeus. If we could just remember ourselves. And I think that's also something that's, that's very meaningful to people. So he comprises in a rare way, in a, a little bit like Jesus, who does the same, the very worst experiences human beings can have. I mean, talk about blowing it, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, almost got her out there. I, the song worked. It's close. It's all great. And, and then, ah. Uh, you know, as you said, it's so often in our own lives, that moment is reflected in other ways. And and then at, on the other side of it, however, we have this promise that that he has brought to us the ability to harmonize ourselves and reawaken, remember our immortality and remember who we really are and to be able to experience this world as a creation of the gods that is filled with beauty and that the gods are filled with wisdom and that they are there to liberate us. And so we have the, the very bottom of human experience of ignorance, making the wrong decision and really wrecking things. And we have on the other side, this transcendence, a wonderful image of transcendence, one of the most powerful and so I think that's part of it, that it has that wide spectrum of human experience in it. But you've also had generations and generations of brilliant minds just adding their little bits to it. And I mean, Dante was strongly influenced by Orpheus. And we yeah. find we find all kinds of Orphic influences in the Divine Comedy. Or when you're reading about Ficino and you find out that one of the great opera uh, composers of the day did a... A, an opera which Ficino inspired about Orpheus and the set pieces were all designed by Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, wow. And, and so this, we keep finding, you know, Orpheus shows up in the Rosicrucian manifestos and in the masks that were performed uh, by the Elector Palatine, Frederick, just before the 30 years war erupted. And, and we find this kind of spark of revolution in this Orphic ideal. And I'm not sure about why that is either, but I saw it over and over again. Um, I mean, it was one of the things that, that we were most struck by in our research was how come it seems like every time Orpheus pops up, suddenly there's this little renaissance or a big one. Mm. And people seem emboldened and, and they, they suddenly become more enraptured with art 
and with life and with love. And it's just a different, complete thing. So, you know, if you look at the medieval world and the absence of, of anything but, you know, Sir Orfeo, this sort of medieval figure for troubadours, when you come up into the Renaissance and suddenly the writings are available, Plato's available, some of the Neoplatonic stuff is available, and boom, explosion of arts and, and of esoteric thinking and of books and of just all kinds of, of wonderful uh, human accomplishments happen. And we trace this in the book, how it just seems to keep keep happening. So people find it, whether it's individual artists like, uh, again, uh, Rilke, the great German poet who mm -hmm. uh, had that sense of Orpheus is haunting me, he said. I keep finding little postcards with Orpheus on them or somebody mentions Orpheus or this is right before he wrote sonnets to Orpheus. And so here's this a lonely guy, but it has this hugely influential poetry uh, that's inspired by Orpheus. But then you have whole groups of people who got together, like the Academy of uh, of Orpheus, essentially, in France, that that were Catholics and Protestants who got together to do what they called Orphic singing, trying to create vibrations that would stop the war between the Catholics and the Protestants. Fascinating. Yeah, and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, with uh, obviously with Freud and Jung that have a blast because the underworld is always the the unconscious or the collective unconscious and the treasures and all the forces down there. And you write what Jung thought this was a, a tale of artistic expression and perfection. Yeah, individuation. You know, this was a symbol for him of individuation that he, he finally used. Like to him, when Orpheus, that Orpheus looked back and he loses her is not, that's, that's not a bad thing. That's Orpheus uh, integrating and then becoming this creative, uh, you know, incredible presence in Western history. And so he said that, that to him, it was a good symbol for the process that, that his, therapy was intended to to create mm -hmm. to to help you individuate into the best you that you can be and so orpheus what does he do he tries he, you know he fully experiences he he's mourning eurydice he he has the courage to go to hades he performs the song that makes everything stop you know prometheus's liver isn't getting chewed on anymore uh, the rock of Sisyphus isn't being pushed up the mountain anymore. Everything stops and everybody listens. All the ghosts gather around like a giant audience. And, and so he does that and he gets the commitment and he's starting to bring her back. And then he makes a mistake. He's a human being. He's partly Titan. He's impatient and he's insecure. So he turns too soon and, and then he loses her and he mourns that. But while he's there every morning singing to Apollo on that hilltop, finally, in one version of the myth, Apollo takes pity on him and teaches him the mysteries every morning. Mm -hmm. And that's when people notice what's going on. And the men all join him to learn these mysteries, which really angers the Maenads. And they say that he has destroyed the rites of Dionysus. So they tear uh, Orpheus apart. And it was said that his head was thrown into the river and that he, it softly sang uh, all the way to the island of Lesbos, causing the animals, the river and the sky to weep. And finally, 
on that island, Apollo took the head of Orpheus and he, he put it into a cave to be an oracle of the gods. And it was considered a very good oracle where the nightingales sang with a special kind of sweetness. Beautiful, yeah. Reminds me of the Oasis song, Don't Look Back in Anger. And uh, yeah, for for the audience, uh, it's kind of a gruesome ending, but people just should know that Orpheus was never a, even a mortal to begin with, right, Ronnie? He was uh, no. Unfortunately, not- you and I can't be Orpheus or Vance. He kind of had a a head start, if you would. <laughs> well, he 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 first appears as as one of the uh, great Greeks on the Argo, which is we compare it to the first. Uh, tour bus. I, I mean, I think that Orpheus is kind of the first rock star in a way. You know, he's the, the women love him and they hate him. You know, the men all are around him. Everybody thinks, oh my God, his lyrics, they tell you everything you need to know. He's effeminate. I think he's gay. You know, I mean, it's all right there. And well, you said Ovid was like, did you? Yeah, you're right. Ovid yeah. blamed Orpheus for bringing homosexuality to Greece. Yeah, like they needed help. Right, exactly. Well, he wrote this song about this red-lipped boy, and they all went nuts. You know, it was that they couldn't stand it, and right. and so, so here he is, this this great mythic figure who's hanging out with Hercules and Jason on the the trip to get the golden fleece, and everywhere he's going, he's establishing new mysteries of the gods with songs, and these are all rites of purification that are supposed to help people reach that understanding of what the divine wants from us in life. Mm, beautifully said. Yeah, but Orpheus was, uh, he was half God. He was a demigod. I forget who was, uh, his mother was one of the Calliope. Muses. One of the muses. Yeah. So his, yeah. it's interesting, isn't it? That his, his grandmother was, was memory. Mm. And here's this and- obsession with memory and all the Orphic work of remembering uh, uh, who you are and and where you came, not forgetting that life, and then oh, here's a brand new life, which you know it's kind of fun. I mean, I mean, every life has suffering, but you you if you have eternity and you're living life after life, it's sort of like watching binge watching some show that you like or something. <laughs> but but he was he was saying, look at you know, there's this world of freedom that we have to get out of here because this is the wheel of suffering here. This is. A, a wheel where we continue to live in ignorance and we have to suffer the consequences of being trapped in mortality. Yeah. And we got to get out or as uh, Peter Gabriel sang in the carpet crawlers, you got to get in to get out. I think that's the, the great song. And uh, yeah, as a few more questions, as we get to the end, there's one section, well, God, that blew me away. Talk about uh, Dallas or dynasty. And that's the, the the emperor severus and his reign oh, and is a thing i was like that is one of the wildest roman families i've ever seen in my life i mean there were <laughs> priests of baal and uh they oh, were yeah. just very, very strange and i love, I love it. it yeah his grandson i think the thing that you can say the mic drop is uh his grandson elagabalus he invented the whoopee cushion I was like, that's it. That's your place in history. Yeah. In the in the second century, Vance, or <laughs> the late second century. <laughs> yeah, he was a, he a was, shitty invention. <laughs> uh, it was pretty. And he also, uh, he was quite the surrealist. He would have parties where he would only have people uh, who were bald or people who only had one eye. Or he would have parties where there was only white food 
or only green food. And supposedly at one of his parties, he deliberately had so many flowers dropped from the ceiling that several of the guests were smothered to death. He was quite a character. And the four Julias, I mean, man, you know, I don't I don't do much screenwriting work, but but I'm like HBO needs to do <laughs> the, Ju- yeah. the four Julias someday. Move over Caligula. Cause, yeah, because it's just and also the Julias are so amazing because what you have there is a moment in Roman history where. Rome is is really near its end and it could have ended then. And mm-hmm. it's two real foreigners. I mean, the emperor was part Roman and part African. Mm-hmm. And so the Romans hated that. They were like, this is a guy that is related to Hannibal, our greatest enemy <laughs> in history. And now he's going to be emperor. And then his wife, whom he married supposedly because an astrologer said that anybody who married her would rule the world. She was the daughter of the king and high priest of Baal. Yeah. <laughs> I know the Romans Syri- were mortified. <laughs> yeah, Syrian, right? And so they were like, so now we have a Syrian empress and an African king, uh, emperor. And, and now we have this specter of the possibility that we may wind up getting a high priest of Baal in as emperor. And that's what happened because Elagabalus was the high priest of Baal. And uh, so he, yeah, he was a great character. I mean, I, that whole section and just, if, and by the way, Caracalla, I mean, this, this guy uh-huh. who deliberately had all his portraits done scowling and his father's <laughs> last words to him were, basically screw everybody but the army and give them lots of money. Uh, but they kept Rome together. And what I found fascinating yeah. about them was that the Julias really understood the value of Rome. Like they, they, they kept it together. They worked yeah. in the Senate. They, it didn't last long, but they, they were trying to tell everybody how important the fact that they could be the rulers of Rome proved that Rome was right that Rome was something amazing and wonderful and beyond uh, a normal nation, right? Because somebody like, yeah. And it's kind of reminds me of our own era in the sense. No, it is. That's why it was so shocking, Ronnie. You've got a pandemic. You've Mm -hmm. got the emperor saying, I'm a woman. I want to pay a doctor to change my sex. Mm -hmm. You've got the Praetorian guard who are basically the military industrial, the generals of America, calling the shots and back you got all these parallels and i'm really like these are probably universal themes although very striking to today and of course the syncretism of religions and ideas and which really uh supercharged the cult of dionysus and those some people think that the that the actual origin of the hymns of orpheus as we have them now, I should say that Orpheus was thought to live one generation before Troy, right? So before yeah. the time of Homer. But but in, in the, the hymns as they exist today, they, are, they could very well be the product of the symposiums that Julia Domna, the first of the Julias, Julia, they call her Black Julia, Julia Domna, that she would have. And these were amazing symposiums that you had Galen there who was the authority on medicine for a thousand years after that. You had one of the great uh, jurisprudence minds of all time in Julia Domna and in some of the people that she had attracted into her service who redesigned Roman jurisprudence and made it the basis of 
what today is Western jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. You had uh, some great writers like the writer uh, Apuleius who wrote The Golden Ass, which was kind of a combination satire novel religious tract. And you had uh, Philostratus who wrote The Life of Apollonius of Tyana, which is right. another amazing kind of fanciful document. And there was a lot of encouragement of the old cults, including the cult of Dionysus and, and this interest in the Orphic hymn. So if you read them, there's this theory that, that the way that they were organized was for the purpose of drinking at a party. So they get kind of rowdy in the middle, and that's, that's where it starts to really be into the sensuality of life. But then when you're getting toward the end and it's time to go home, it starts to get into darker subjects. And it finally closes with sleep and death. Mm. It's like, okay, party's over, <laughs> time to leave. And it's a very interesting theory. And there, there is some evidence that that could be the case. But again, we just don't know. For the longest time, the idea was that they were actually written like five or 600 BC, somewhere in there. Um, but it doesn't look like it. It looks like these hymns. And I should mention, too, that some people thought for the longest time that they were put together by this guy, Onomacritus, who's a, quite a character who uh, was serving one of the Athenian tyrants and is also credited for possibly putting Homer together. Like like mm. what the Iliad and Odyssey, as we know them, may have been gathered together by him. And he was he was accused of being a blasphemer, as Tamara and I would be for changing, <laughs> changing the hymns and, and adding things and, and stuff. But he wound up being taken by the tyrant who was kicked out of Athens to Persia to read omens for the king of Persia to tell him that it was a great idea to invade Greece. And mm. he was actually there. Onomacritus was there during the famous Battle of Thermopylae where, where Leonidas oh, wow. stood against yeah. the, the Persians. And then he disappears from history after that. But for the longest time, people thought that that guy must have been the author. Fascinating. Yeah, again, uh, it's amazing. In 110 pages, you and Tamara just, I mean, you cover everything. And we didn't even talk about, speaking of modern occultism, Orpheus influenced Aleister Crowley, didn't he? Crowley yes. wrote about Orpheus. Quite so. a bit. He, he wrote an epic poem that was supposed to be his greatest poem, but he was very disappointed by the results. Um, he also mentions Orpheus in almost every single issue of the Equinox. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no doubt that, that Orpheus was a strong influence on, on him. And not surprisingly, because he thought that he was the reincarnation of Eliphas Levi. And Eliphas Levi was d- also very interested in yeah. Orpheus. And not surprisingly, with his not very successful love life, Levi was very drawn to the story of the backward glance. And he thought it was a warning about don't ever be too much in love because that anxiousness will betray you. Wonderful. Yeah. It's a really good book and what a great story. I'm so glad uh, it has brought you guys brought it back from the underworld and you didn't look back. Very happy (laughs) about that. So, but yeah, I think we're getting at the end. Yeah, there's a couple of super chats. Let me look. Thank you very much. Yeah, esoteric teachings and yeah. uh, the great, yeah, Christina Marie. Thank you. And both have already bought your book as we oh, speak in real you. time. You, you will not be disappointed, people. And I hope you uh, definitely check it out. Yeah, so so into this interview, I didn't even do any housekeeping. So 
usual stuff. Please support a young bite. Uh, need voiceover. Yada yada yada. Help out. Uh, <laughs> definitely buy the magic. The magic of the Orphic hymns. Uh, Elvis is king. Uh, the yeah, usual stuff. Yeah, great yeah. book. Wait till you uh, wait till you all get to read that book because Miguel's book is such a blast. And it's a vision of Elvis that will be different than you've ever seen before. It's really great. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And the more I, I keep finding out, and again, I didn't get these like, you know, sensationalistic books. It's all Priscilla, Memphis Mafia. It's all from the horse's mouth, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Did you mention Orpheus? <laughs> yeah. No. I don't, oh, I don't no. know. Let, let me find out. Usually somebody says something and that night I'll I'll see an interview on HBO or something. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me talk All about right. it. You know, that you know how these <laughs> things are, Ronnie. They're the synchronicities. Magical. Yeah, it's all about the magic. So as we're at the end, uh Vance, any last questions or comment on your end? Yeah. Is there any uh recorded mythology about uh Orpheus? returning to Hades after he was killed or is he spared that fate? No, actually, it's such an interesting question. No, actually there isn't any record that I know of. And there should be, I mean, some, some literary writer, at least it seems to me, I mean, there's a reunion, right? When he actually gets there. But I think that Orpheus was considered to be someone that was immediately taken to the Elysian fields and the Elysian fields, um, we don't really have a lot of descriptions of them. Like, like Pindar said that they were, <clears throat> excuse me, fit fields of purple roses, which is very beautiful. But that's where uh, the great philosophers and, and everybody that the Christians thought uh, were almost good enough, but they just unfortunately didn't live at the right time to, to have heard about Jesus. They were allowed to stay in the Elysian fields mm-hmm. in early Christianity. But the Elysian fields was a, a Greek idea and it was where heroes uh, went to be rewarded by the gods. So, for example, when Socrates in the Platonic Dialogues is saying, hey, guys, it's not so bad. I'm going to drink this poison and die. Because either I won't know anything or I'm going to get to meet all the great people of history. And the first one he <laughs> mentions is Orpheus. Oh. And what does Orpheus mean? I think you meant uh, priest or something like that. There's a lot of. Oh, we theories. don't know. We don't really know. Um, the I am intrigued, and I think what you're referring to is there's a wonderful book um, called Black Athena, mm. which is it, it was the first really uh, in depth academic work that said, wait a minute, you know, why don't we take the Greeks at their word that they were strongly influenced by Egypt? and by Africa and see what we can find. And he found quite a bit of evidence, uh, at least from his argument, and some of it's quite convincing. So for instance, when we talk about Orpheus being all ripped apart and thrown into the river, well, that's Osiris. When we talk about, right, and we talk about Athena pops out of the forehead of Zeus, and she's this god of incredible strategy and military might. I mean, even the famous story in the Iliad when Ares is infuriated by Athena, And so he runs at her in full battle frenzy and she stands there holding her spear just kind of straight up. It doesn't, doesn't even react, doesn't even blink. And then just at the, at the very second, that's the right second, she just turns her spear. So the butt end is right where his third eye is and Aries runs right into it and knocks himself out. (laughs) 
And so this is the difference between the Aries style of war, which is just full ferocity, and then Athena. Well, isn't that Sekhmet, right? You know, comes out of the forehead of Ra, a great warrior who avenges, you know, Ra against the unjust. So, and and both of them are carriers of the Aegis, right? Uh, Sekhmet carries the Aegis of Ra, the sacred power of uh, omnipotence, and so does Athena for Zeus. So he found these similarities, and and he thought that the name Orpheus came from ancient Egyptian Orpheus. I can't pronounce it quite right, but it's O-R-P-A-I-S is the way we transcribe it. It's basically Orpheus. Orpheus. It's close, you know, and he thought that mm. word, which meant hereditary prince in, in Egyptian, was what the name really came from. Uh, it's always fun speculation, but that's that's why we do these things. There's so many yeah, speculations. Exactly. So, well, awesome. We're at the end, Vance. Thanks for uh, keeping us company and keeping the Chatico calm in the underground. Oh yeah, they were great, and Orpheus is great. Learned a lot about Orpheus. I didn't know. Thanks, Ronnie. Oh, thank you, Vance. I'm glad. Yes, and for everybody, definitely get the the magic of the Orphic hymns. Uh, great book. I know I'm going to treasure it. Uh, when the Elvis book comes out next year, Ronnie, I'm going to put them together so we have like this energy spell. I like it. <laughs> Should be a good one. Well, Ronnie, thank you very much. Uh, thank Tamara for writing this book. Uh, I will. Great book. And, and your next book is what, Rosicrucians? Yeah, that'll be the next one, I think. I don't know when it's coming out. I think next year, but Inner Traditions already bought it. And that's going to be a look at all this new research about rosicrucianism and how it reveals a really fascinating counterculture awesome well we're glad you're on this theme of countercultures keep at it so thank you (laughs) help society well thank you very much as always for coming on the show and look forward to our next chat and uh, and definitely look forward to our next chat about elvis as always oh yeah anytime all right, everybody, thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, have a good uh, Labor Day weekend. We will talk soon. Great shows coming out next week. Again, Hermeticism, a show on the psychology of totalitarian totalitarianism. Uh, a lot of great shows with a lot of good themes. So, yeah, keep coming back. And as I always say, write your own gospel, live your own myth. Take care, everybody. Bye. And there you have it, oh, you of the broken places, like Orpheus. Ronnie giving us the true and rewarding dope on Orpheus slash Elvis. A hunk of hunk of burning gnosis. As a bonus for all subs, I will include now a classic interview with my friend and eternally missed Acharya S. She provided an also stellar discussion on Orpheus and his movement, including a lot on the connection of Orphism and Gnosticism. Consider this the ultimate podcast education on all things Orpheus. If you're a non-sub, please subscribe for the full Mystic Tune. Your support keeps the lights of the Pleroma on. For all subs... Let us to the bonus material, and you won't be the same after this. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. 
Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.